Hello and welcome to Acting Up, the podcast that dives deep into the world of TV and film that highlights our people, our culture, and our stories. I'm your host, Courtney Wills, Entertainment Director at The Grio, and this week we're diving into Descendant. Today we are diving into Descendant, a documentary I had the privilege to screen at the Sundance Film Festival, where it received the U.S. Documentary Special Jury Award for Creative Vision. It has since been acquired by the Obama's Higher Ground Productions and will be released on Netflix at a later date. And that is very good news because this is a story everyone needs to know about. So the official synopsis says, Descendant follows members of Africatown, a small community in Alabama, as they share their personal stories and community history as descendants of the Clotilda, the last known slave ship to illegally transport human beings as cargo from Africa to America. The ship's existence, a centuries-old open secret, is confirmed by a team of marine archaeologists. The film explores implications of the Clotilda's discovery for the descendants, who grapple with their heritage while claiming the power to shape their own destinies. There is so much to unpack in this film directed by Margaret Brown, who is one of my guests today on Acting Up. First, the earth-shattering discovery of the Clotilda, the last known slave ship to arrive in the United States from Africa in 1860. It arrived roughly 40 years after slave trading was outlawed and became punishable by death. So the people who ordered it had every reason to sink it in the river, which they did. And it's actually not a secret who ordered this ship. It was the Mayer family. They ordered the ship. They filled it with human cargo. And when it arrived, they set it on fire and sunk it, then spent years kind of lying about its whereabouts. The Africans who walked off of that ship established a community known as Africatown, and their descendants have preserved their history with the facts being relegated to urban legend and rumors about the ship and its whereabouts. They've been swirling for decades. One of the ship's survivors, Cujo Lewis, shared his life story with a prolific writer and historian, Zora Neale Hurston, back in 1928. She recorded his story in his native tongue and refused to let her publisher change the language, which left it unpublished until 2018, when it was finally released as Barracoon. Descendant follows several of Cujo's direct descendants, who together with other relatives of survivors of the Clotilda, have cultivated lives in Africatown that have been heavily influenced by their ancestors' customs, language, and religion. But the area has been plagued by pollution from industries built around it, leaving lots of people sick with cancer and other ailments that seem to be prompted by the environment. And what's so crazy is that Mayer family owns a lot of those companies and industries and factories that are polluting the land that these people ended up on. So many years passed with this community of people insisting that they were indeed the direct descendants of the captives on the Clotilda. And in 2018, the ship was finally discovered. Even more astounding than the discovery itself is the fact that the ship was preserved because it had been sitting in mud for so long, meaning that this wreckage contained a lot more evidence and artifacts that can tell us so much about what happened on it because of the way that it was preserved. DNA tracing is possible. Renderings of the ship and its cargo have been created and they're shown in this film and are so deeply rattling. 
seeing the naked bodies of the human cargo piled up on top of each other under the ship is jarring enough. And then we see the direct descendants of those people seeing those images for the first time. And it's utterly gut-wrenching. The Mayer family still looms large in the Mobile, Alabama area. And ever since the Clotilda was actually found, they seem to have stopped talking about it. The community is currently battling for so much from reparations to lawsuits over the health issues, the environmental racism at play, as well as the struggle over who controls the narrative about this discovery. It's all still ongoing, and all of these things are wrapped up in this mind-blowing project. Tariq Black Thought Trotter and Amir Questlove Thompson are among the executive producers on this film. And it's especially personal to Questlove, who learned that he was a direct descendant of survivors from the Clotilda. Descendant is not Margaret Brown's first film on the subject. Her other work, The Order of Myths, is actually what prompted her to eventually follow up with Descendants. She also directed Be Here to Love Me, Towns Van Zant, and The Great Invisible. When Margaret agreed to be a guest on Acting Up, I was so pleased because I had so many questions for her not only about how she managed to tell such an important story with so many pieces, but also how she reconciled her position as a white woman tackling this precious piece of history with so much racism at the root of it. Hi, Margaret. Oh my gosh, what a beautiful film you've created here with Descendant. Thank you. It was a team effort in front of the camera and behind the camera. It was, director is a weird word for this one. There is so much to dive into with this documentary that premiered at the Sundance Film Festival, Margaret. Oh my God. Like how, how did this story even come to you and how did you begin to try to tackle it? Well, actually it started 15 years ago. I made another film called The Order of Myths that was about segregated Mardi Gras in Mobile. And at a certain point in the filmmaking after Mardi Gras, I had heard before I made the film, people talked about it almost like a rumor or gossip or something. I heard like, oh, the Mayer family, the queen that year was Helen Mayer, who's a member of the Mayer family. And people would be like, oh, her family brought the slave ship, the Clotilde to Mobile. But this is like nothing I had learned about in history books or Like, I didn't really know that story. I was like, oh, okay. And then after Mardi Gras was over, you know, after I'd followed Helen's journey, some other people who were debutantes in the white Mardi Gras court, and then Stephanie Lucas and Joseph Roberson's journey, who were the king and queen for the black Mardi Gras court, I was filming, I was doing sound and the cinematographer was shooting. We were filming with Stephanie and her grandparents because her grandparents had kind of raised her. And Stephanie's grandfather says, just casually mentions, oh, on camera, my family's descended off that ship, the mayorship. And I was just like, excuse me, <laughs> what? And then Stephanie goes, my people are from her people's ship. And I looked at the cinematographer and he looked at me and we didn't say anything at the time. We just sort of, I could see he knew what I knew, which is like, oh my God, like these two Mardi Gras queens are connected from the Clotilda. That was in 2007. Then the film changed. The film became around the Clotilda. So it it became, it became very focused around the Clotilda. So Kern Jackson, who's in this film, he worked with me on that film. He was the historical advisor and we would sit in this coffee shop in Mobile and just talk about this for hours. And then about four years ago, when Ben Rains announced that he, this isn't really in the film, but Ben Rains, who ended up finding the ship, he announced like two years before that, that, that he found, he thought he found the ship. It, it turned out not to be the ship that the real ship was found about a year later. 
So around 2018 or maybe 2017, the, the details are hazy. Like when that happened, I started getting emails from people and messages on my social media saying, hey, like, you know, this is all being reported. This might be the Clotilda. Like, that's actually not the story. There's a more interesting story. You should come back and film, you know? And I was like, never. I mean, usually like when you make a film, you don't go and make another one. So I didn't think that was not the plan, you know? But that's the thing about documentaries. You never know what's going to happen. So Louis Black, who is, is one of the associate producers in the film, he was like, you have to go. Like, you have to go back. Like, this is, this is sort of wild. And so he, he wrote me a check, like, in a restaurant in L.A. And it was like, go. And so I got on a plane and went. And that's sort of how the film started. That is incredible. It was a very auspicious beginning, yes. <laughs> This is such a loaded story. I mean, even just like recounting it so casually to you a minute ago, it sounded like a drama, like a nighttime soap, you know, like a real, holy moly, there's like a lot going on and like a big, powerful, bad family and like Aaron Barakovich style community pollution from industry being put on this land and people getting sick in large numbers who live there, like... There is so much going on here. There's a lot going on. I would say that I know the Mayer family has done things that are, you know, bad. But I would also say, like, slavery is not just their problem. Like, this is something that is, you know, it's the South's problem. It's the country's problem. It's a global problem. And I believe it's Ramsey who says in the movie, when this happens, if they don't speak, they're going to be the avatar of silent slaveholders. And like, I frankly don't think that like good and evil is that clear cut. Like Helen Mayer was in the order of myths and she traveled around with the film. And I don't think she's a bad person. I think her family's telling her not to talk. But I do think that like this, this legacy of silence is really unhealthy. And it's the problem of the South. You know, it's like, I mean, it's, it's, it's for white people to figure out, you know, and I think that like, there's a lot of reckoning to go around. I, I wanted in the film, I don't want it all focused on the mayor family. There's a lot of us white people that need to in interrogate ourselves. You know what I mean? It's not, it's not just the mayors. Well, what, how did she feel about you doing this? Because I do think that the film, I don't think it was an indictment in any stretch of that family or, you know, the existing family now, but having known her and worked with her, like, did it, did you feel a little responsibility to be very, I don't think I felt, I felt a responsibility to what I perceive as the truth. And I asked Helen if she would talk to me, she didn't answer. She wrote me back about other things, but not that. And, and, um, you know, so I don't know what she's thinking and I would never try to speak for her, yeah. but it does make me sad that, yeah. um, they don't speak. And I hope when people watch the movie, they think about the toll of silence. You know, it, it, it can't be healthy. Does that make sense? I don't know. Like it does. No, it's complicated. I literally said to my husband, we watched this together over the weekend. And I said to him, damn, like, what about the existing mayor family? Like, you know, the 40 year old who like many extremely wealthy and old white families, heads of fortunes, masters of, of business, and Wall Street did come from family money that benefited from slavery. Like, what if you were just woke up in 2022 and someone was like, yo, your family did this. And like, all you did actually truly was be born. That's a real thing 
too. So like I said, I don't think the film is an indictment of this family as much as, you know, a system and of a legacy and one that doesn't, I think, have a clear answer at all. It's very messy. Like this is the only one. This doesn't have, this is not a a trend. Like there's not a bunch of instances. Environmental racism in black communities with industrial, there is that trend, but like, you know, I've made a few other films that dealt with, you know, environmental racism and it's not an accident. I mean, it's a kind of like willful forgetting, you know, Or, or that's a nice way to say it, but like, it's, Yeah, I I think it's really complicated. And I'm not trying to be an apologist for that family. I'm just trying to be honest about like, like you, you explained it better than I could. Like, what do you do when you wake up and like your only sin is to be born into a certain family and, and people in your family who you love have really strong opinions, like in maybe you don't agree with them. I don't know. I mean, I don't know what's going on. You know? Yeah. Yeah, it's a lot. But I know if it was my family, I would have made different decisions. <laughs> but like, who knows? We, you can't you can't know something until you walk into people's shoes. But it's hard to sort of give them the benefit of the doubt for certain decisions. But, you know, it's also hard to blame someone for what family they were born into. It's very complicated. Right. So the people who walked off of this boat and were not slaves, what did they do? First of all, the movie is about oral history. And like, from what I can gather from records and historians is that some of them were sent to different plantations for there. I mean, it's hard because there's stories passed down in families in Africa town that's that, that, that say that no one was ever enslaved. So that could possibly be true. I think there's records that say that some people were enslaved. So, you know, again, like, but who, who writes the history? So it's like, I think one thing this film I hope to interrogate is like why people write down what, when, you know, (laughs) like who has the power to create the narrative. And like, if you think about like people, I'm probably murdering the statistic and I need to get it right before I do more press. But I know that like, I think one out of seven people was literate back then. Those were probably white men. So like, who was writing history, you know? So when you start to know this stuff, it sort of changes your your definition of like, well, what is history? That is such a good point. And what is history? Absolutely. And having a piece of this ship, though, I mean, that's tangible. They were saying they might be able to do like DNA tracing even to really define the lineage, which is mind blowing. But you said something that I want to come back to. And that is, yeah, like who controls the narrative and who writes it down and who documents it. And I wonder for you as a white woman coming to this huge, hugely important piece of black history, like what goes into that? I mean, it's like, for me, if I'm going to make it about myself for a second, this is like the question that plagued me once I realized like the mayor family wasn't going to talk to me. And a lot of white people in Mobile weren't going to talk to me because they were afraid to speak. Then I was like, oh my God, am I really a white person making a movie about black people owning their story? Like what the fuck? You know, I mean, it was just like, this is not a position I want to be in. I don't know if I should be in this position. Like at that point, it was kind of like pretty far down the road where I'm already making the movie. It's already funded. I had a lot of hubris and thought because Helen was in my other movie that she would probably talk to me if no one else in that family talked to me. Since we traveled with the movie, went to Sundance, went to other places. She was vocal about being from a family that that brought the last slave ship to America. She did not shy away from that. So I was very, I thought, oh, well, I can, surely she'll talk to me. Like we did this together already. 
But you know what? There's something about proof when they bring the ship up. People don't talk. It changes the narrative. This tangible proof. I mean, this is what I'm guessing. The tangible proof changed her willingness to speak. Yeah, that's so deep. But you know what you said, too, like you thought and you seemed to you had every reason to believe you probably had a unique ability to tell this story because of your access to her and your and your previous work. And when that's not the case, even though it might feel like, especially when you must have made this movie, like the social climate and the, you know, we want to tell our own stories. Yeah. And the height of all of that um, had to be daunting. But like, what would be the alternative to not make it to not use that check that you in, you know, for whatever merit and reason and your ability to get a check and go make an important movie. Like that's an, that's a, an amazing ability. And so why not make it and make it honestly the way that you did and like make this beautiful thing that I think is just the beginning. Obviously, this will not likely be the last project based on this. There's so much more to uncover and to continue with. But I think that there is something to be said for you doing it. And I'm glad that you did. Well, thank you for saying that. I think like the reasons I have the ability to make it are because of privilege. And, you know, I went to Brown University, like I grew up in a family with money. You know, you have to, I don't know. I mean, I, I like, I'm wondering if the answer is clear that like, I, I have this opportunity. I mean, obviously I've worked really hard to get where I am. I'm not taking away from that. I, I know how hard I work, but there's another part of it, which is just like white privilege and very, you know, just like own all of, I don't know. I just like, I, I think about all of it. So it was hard. It was, a, it was a lot of internal struggle, but again, like the movie's not about me and I want to like, this is really important to me. It's my hometown. It's something that I do think white people have to reckon with. And so if I can be a part of that, then great. You know, I, I want to be part of that conversation. I love that. And I'm so glad that you're part of this conversation. I could talk to you about it for so much longer, but I have to let you go. So my final question is, you know, when I see really strong documentaries like this that plants so many seeds in my own mind, I know that there must be so much more that didn't make it in, so much left on the cutting room floor. So if there's one thing, one area that you either scratched the surface of or didn't even get to, like, you know, if you had one more hour, what what would have made it in there? We really wanted to take a trip as a group to Benin, but then the pandemic happened because you know how Emmett talks about Cujo always wanted to go back home. Zora Neale Hurston wrote about that. I, I, like, you know, Vita's very curious about where she's from. All of them are so curious. But then when the pandemic happened, it's clear that that trip is not going to happen. So that was very difficult. Maybe that's a sequel. I don't know. But that desire from that community has not gone away. That would be so amazing to see. Margaret, thanks so much for your time today and your candor. It's rare that I get to hear that perspective. And I think that it's really important and valuable. And I think that this documentary stands to just make such an impact on so many of us. So thank you for it. You're welcome. And thank you for talking deeply to me. I appreciate it. Absolutely. You take care. I'll also speak to Kern Jackson, who served as a historical consultant on Descendant, about the implications a discovery like this could have for generations to come. Hi, Kern. 
Thank you so much for joining me today to talk about this incredible documentary called Defendant that premiered at the Sundance Film Festival that just has affected me so deeply. I think it's so important. Wow. Okay. Okay. I think it's so important, like what it means and what it could mean. And just this uh, tangible, like thing that is probably like, so close, like one of the most close, untouched, like, connections is just overwhelming, I think. The more we talk about it with other folks, because, you know, we've been talking amongst ourselves for so long, the more we talk about it to other folks, the the more I feel like folks in Africatown are standing instead for a bunch of whole people, you know, a whole bunch of other folks. All of that, for sure. I actually just finished speaking to Margaret about this film, and we touched on, I think, some really important things about her approach to this. But what I really wanted to talk to you about is the history of this. I mean, talk about talk about Black history. This is so insane. And I feel like I have so many questions for you, including what can a physical thing, a discovery like this, this ship, a wreckage of what is probably the last slave ship to come over from Africa has been discovered. And what can that do for us? Like, what can it really show us? Man, I mean, so many things, not the least of which is sort of the the arrogance of power. You know, this is like the folks in Africatown say throughout the whole thing, we knew where it was, right? Ben Rains did not discover this ship. The people in Africatown already knew where it was and had been functioning with the power of that knowledge and the the implications of what it has to sort of trouble the waters, to borrow another phrase of, you know, the the city fathers and mothers and chamber of commerce and this sort of thing. What it can do, though, when they raise it up, is like Gary Lumber says, oh, my God, when we start doing DNA trace and we find out that, you know, it ain't just the Black people related to the Clotilda. With the amount of 19th century miscegenation went around this Gulf Coast town, we didn't just get a Creole population out of the air. And so, you know, these arbitrary divisions of community, like where you go at 11 o'clock and where I go at 11 o'clock, and they're going to dissipate when we find out we cousins. Wow, that is so wild. That is so wild. There's so much about this documentary that is really, <laughs> really kind of wild like it seems like it could be a made-up drama i told margaret like i could imagine whole mini series about all of the elements of this thing but one thing that i thought was so 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 fascinating is that my favorite author zora neale hurston got something else almost as unfathomable as the ship itself which is this firsthand in his native tongue account of his life story from someone who walked off of that ship, like recorded or, you know, from conversations conducted when, like 1926, I think, or 28 maybe, and was just published in 2018. Right. No, I mean, Hurston had to have got her lead from somewhere, right? So the the tip she received that encouraged her to come over here, I think she came over here from New Orleans when she was down in New Orleans. The tip that she received, along with sort of the ethnographic investigation she was already conducting, she was looking for voodoo people. And she was trying to sort through what are the implications of this spirituality? What are the, what do these folks have it in more concrete ways? 
you know, uh, what are they practicing? I mean, and she's writing letters to uh, Langston Hughes saying, you know, they're supposed to be working on Mule Bone to play. And she's writing letters to him saying, boy, guess what I found, right? And they had a really, tumult- not a tumultuous relationship. They had a relationship that was little, you know, like big sister, little brother type thing. She would, she would tell him what she really thought. And um, just to read some of those letters and stuff about, you know, sleeping on Cujo's couch or whatever in his space and having the good sense to wait out the, the richness of the interaction. Because you look at Barracoon, she had, to, she had to jump through some hoops to get that narrative. He didn't just give it to her. She had to prove herself worthy to get to a place where he felt comfortable with her being present when he was crying. Oh, God, you just like took me back to the part of the documentary where one of his descendants, direct descendants, says he would just um, cry because he missed home. Yeah. And and to what extent? I mean, we would call that a triggering. I mean, even for folks who aren't Clotilde descendants, if folks been telling me, man, that movie made me cry. It's triggering. What is it triggering? It's triggering like what do folks call it? Um, Post-traumatic slave complex that you like have. You know, you, you empathize, right? Because you know that could be you. And uh, yeah, I mean, Emmett was talking to us the other day about the fact that he always imagined when he saw the footage for the first time, he was blown away because, you know, everybody in his line looked just like Cujo. He said, that's exactly how I thought he was going to look. So in his mind's eye, his imagination, he had already dreamed of his great, great, great granddaddy. He'd already seen him. It's as if also like, it says, I mean, this story, like you said, they knew where that ship was mm. and the descendants have been there and the oral history has been there. But th- this whole thing has lived so long as like urban legend, as myth, as. Yeah, the, the I remember Dora Franklin telling it in Margaret's previous film. They mentioned the story about the Clotilde. And the way that Dora Finley describes it is as a bet and that the notion, the popularization of the myth as a bet, right? You know, yeah, I mean, it's a, this movie is an active contemplation of that, but it was never, you know, it, was, it wasn't a bet. It was some secessionists sitting around trying to figure out how they're going to give the finger to the union. And so I'm, I'm an arrogant shipmaker. I'm going to build me a ship. I'm going to go to Weta, where they're still putting folks through the door, no return, or whatever the, the mechanism is. I'm going to get me some fresh saltwater Negroes in 1859. So, you know, it's the arrogance of secession. And it's almost as if, I think, like, the, the emotional reaction, too, is almost as if, like, like the, it gives, you know, the discovery of the shit in your hand now somehow gives validity to all of this pain that like existed in the tales and in the oral tradition. But like, my God, when you have something to hold in your hand, it just becomes so close and so real. And I remember when I watched this stuff with my husband, there's a moment where, I, I mean, what's obviously a simulation, but it's like the the ship and all of the bodies uh, curled up underneath it, stacked up. And I used to see images like that in college, you know, studying African-American history. 
I realized for as much of this kind of content that I consume on a regular basis, that like watching the descendants of those people see that representation hurts so bad. Oh, yeah. I was just talking to Joycelyn about the fact that she's got to walk those streets every day with her ancestors and slavers' names on them, yeah. you know? And when she says she's tired, you know, it's like my mama and them. When they say they tired, they tired, right? I, you know, how, how much more resiliency can I put out? And I think that that's captured in, in, this, in this narrative. And it's important for, for the conversation, you know, these folks, they're doing us a, they're doing us a service, community service, by letting us experience what they what they're going through. You know, they stand instead for, for the rest of us. Isn't it kind of crazy though? Like it's it's as if Zora Neale Hurston knew how important what she was doing was when she was interviewing him. And like that, I mean, what wh- why would it take so long to come out? Something about her wanting to preserve the native tongue. Like, what does that mean? And where has this book been? And how could it have known that we would need this? Yeah, I mean, in Dust Track on the Road, she alludes to her relationship with Osgood Mason, her patron, right? And one of the things, the patron, it's like, I don't know. I like to imagine Osgood Mason being one of, and I, I don't know, I haven't studied their relationship, but I like to imagine uh, her patronage is being connected to that sort of sensibility. Like, let me experience a little blackness, but not too much, right? And so, in large part, Hurston had a lot of pressures on. First of all, to be a woman riding through a black woman riding through the South in a car, right, doing ethnography, yeah, you know, stuff, you know, folklore. People didn't even know what folklore was, you know, <laughs> interviewing formerly enslaved people what have you, to collect their culture, the documented before it was gone. I just know that she was incredibly like self-conscious. She knew exactly what she was doing. She knew exactly. And, and, you know, she's not existing in a, in a vacuum. You know, people are down here doing WPA work, uh, Bakken, the, the person who was over sending field workers out to collect songs and, and stuff. And, and in this time period, these are folks who would have been children doing slave, you know, who still had that feeling like, mm, I'm going to talk to you, but I'm going to smile and I ain't giving you hardly nothing. But Hurston comes along and she she goes, she crosses the burning sands of Cujo's, you know, fulfilling, getting his permission. And she she gets it. And then when when was the Knopf wants to publish it, they're like, oh, we want you to change the language. And Hurston's like, oh, no, 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 no. That's not ethical. I'd rather see it not be published than whitewash his language. You know, he, she was ahead of her time in terms of wanting to represent democracy in her work. And that's democracy with a little d. These are my neighbors. These are my kinfolk. I'm not going to, uh-uh. I, I had to go through all them hoops to get this. Gosh, you've been like so immersed in all that's going on. But the thing about this is it's not just history. It's such a prolific piece of history. And I think this is just the first of hopefully many things to dive into this and, and expand on it. But it also has real life, real time implications. Like they're the fight of the descendants of the Catilda's fight is still going on right now. What does this project stand to contribute to their plight, if anything? Um, 
I don't know. It, it depends on how many folks who who see this and and appreciate it want to get involved with this community and want to become allies with this community. I mean, right down the road, Turkey Creek is another very similar location in Gulfport, Mississippi, going through something very, very similar. And the documentary was made about that, but that didn't stop Turkey Creek from going away. You know, so the documentary itself is limited and only to the extent that people can become part of the cohort. People can bring their their talents, their privilege, their allyship to bear on on this particular uh, dynamic. You know, some people like to go over and do the historical tourism in Africa and they go, they, they had that moment at the door, no return. And, you know, right here we got a we got a door of arrival. And it's not just a slave block. It's a testament to to the arrogance of the the trade. Thank you so much. I wish we had longer, but um... yeah, no, nah, thank you. I appreciate it, and I and I, I'm grateful for for the work that y'all do over y'all's place, and uh, keep up the good work. Well, thank you so much. You take care. Thank you for listening to Acting Up. If you like what you heard, please give us a five-star review and subscribe to the show wherever you listen to your podcasts and share it with everyone you know. Please email all questions, comments, and suggestions to podcasts at thegrio.com. Acting Up is brought to you by The Grio and executive produced by Courtney Wills and produced by Cameron Blackwell. For more with me and Acting Up, check us out on Instagram at actingup.pod.com.